This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have This We Have Done, a syndicated broadcast that recapped the 1942 war efforts of the United States and its allies. It was produced by the Press Association, the radio subsidiary of the Associated Press, and aired on January 1st, 1943. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as any of the books and other stories featured in our podcast. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This we have done. 1942. 1942. 1942. War. Guns. Ships. Planes. Blood. Tanks. Tears. Life. Death. Work. Courage. 1942. A year that will long live in the hearts of free men everywhere. 1942 when the ominous clouds of war had just begun to hover over these stars and stripes. January 1942, the beginning of what is now one year. And we can look back and say, this we have done. This we have done. On January 1st, 1942, Winston Churchill was with our president in the White House. And out of those conferences came the now familiar United Nations. For no longer were we alone in the Western Hemisphere. No longer were we merely allies. We were one of 26 United Nations. Still a little bewildered by the blow at Pearl Harbor. Still a little incredulous that war could have come to us across our protecting oceans. But we were roused at last to the dangers that threatened our very existence. And we were United Nations. and the events of December had already sounded around the world. We had declared war in Japan. Great Britain, Canada, and the Netherlands had done likewise. Italy and Germany had declared war on the United States, and we in turn had declared war on them. Events in the Pacific had moved with startling rapidity, and Captain Colin Kelly had become the war's first hero as he dived to his death in the defense of his country. We had lost Wake Island, and the president had promised in words shaking with emotion that the stars and stripes would again fly over the little Pacific outpost so gallantly defended by a small band of deathless Marines. January 2nd, President Roosevelt announces enormous production goals for 1942 and 3. January 8th, Congress gets $58 billion budget for fiscal year. January 26th, first United States troops land in Northern Ireland. Over there, over there. 
same move had been made. Another AEF was on the march. Another army of doughboys, chins high, chests out, were ready to give the axis a lesson. Nor was the Navy idle during those days, for it was an allied naval and air force that met and turned back a large Jap flotilla in the waters of Macassar Straits. Although heartbreaking losses were still to come, the American war machine was beginning to stir out of its lethargy to feel the pulse of life and grim determination. February 10th. Former French liner Normandy burns and capsizes at her New York pier. It just don't make sense. There she was only yesterday. You could see her from my window. As proud as proud could be. And now, it fair breaks your heart to think of her lying there filled with the muck and slime of the harbor. It may not make sense to you, but it makes sense to some. You can't tell me those things just happened. Speculation ran life. How could this thing be? But little time was wasted. Salvage started with investigation. And tonight, the once proud sides of the Lafayette, as she was rechristened, feel the tramp of busy feet so that she may someday take her rightful place in service to the once free land which gave her birth. The crazy cycle had begun. The cycle which brought hope one day and despair the next. While still confused with the Normandy disaster, our hearts were lifted by news that came across the wide Pacific. The answer to the question, where is our Navy, came dramatically out of the West. In a daring and brilliant raid on the Gilbert and Marshall Islands, 16 Japanese ships had been sunk by U.S. naval forces, which had previously busied themselves with establishing a safe supply line from Hawaii to Australia. 16 Japanese ships, and the news brought smiles, and I told you so's, from those who had worried only yesterday. Singapore! Hugging the Gilbert and Marshall Islands victory close to our hearts, we found them poor consolation for the fall of Singapore. This bastion of empire, this strongly fortified outpost which had defended the South Pacific, was no more. Singapore had fallen. But MacArthur rose. General MacArthur, who had captured the imagination of the world by his heroic delaying action against an overwhelming enemy and caused one Japanese general to commit harakiri to save his face. General MacArthur had arrived in Australia after a heroic trip from the country. Everything is ready, Lieutenant Falkley. The other five boats are waiting. Very good. The general should be here any moment. Stand by on the deck. I'll be out when he comes. Very good. Hey, did you hear the general is going to be in our boat? What do you know? A real live general and a little Betsy. Pretty close quarters for a full general, ain't it? Wonder how he like it. Eh, don't you worry about him. He can take it. That old boy's a fighting general. He can take the rough with a smooth. Start. Here he comes. We go with the fall of the moon. We go in the Ides of March. Good evening, General. Right this way, please. What does he mean, he's going in the Ides of March? Did they change the name of this boat? I've been calling up Betsy all the time. Cast off. Shortly after the sun plunged into the western sea, Lieutenant Bulkley, who had already been decorated for his heroism against the Japs, on that day in March, threaded his six small torpedo boats through the minefields around Corridor. Once clear of the minefields and under cover of darkness, the little boat sped through the night with a full-throated roar that brought aircraft warnings from the Japs' signal lights. Reaching their rendezvous, which was within 30 minutes of a Japanese flying field, the little party was forced to wait in concealment for three days and three nights for the planes that were to take them to Australia. 
only two planes arrived. So all equipment and arms were abandoned as they took off through the Jap-infested skies for Darwin. From Darwin to Melbourne, and the enthusiastic crowds waiting to greet this man whose name was on the lips of everyone, General Douglas MacArthur. I have every confidence in the ultimate success of our cause. But success in modern war requires something more than courage and a willingness to die. It requires careful preparation. This means furnishing sufficient troops and sufficient materiel to meet the known strength of an enemy. My success or failure will depend primarily upon the resources our respective governments place at my disposal. My faith in them is complete. I shall do my best. I shall keep the soldier's faith. We in America were glad, glad to have a man like MacArthur in charge of things down under. Thank God he was safe. Things were moving fast in the Pacific. The deadly Japanese were spreading his slimy tentacles in a seemingly endless series of occupations. Then came news of the capitulation of Bataan, and our hearts were heavy. But Japanese cities. The whole thing was very informal. We even let Tojo announce it. There was that question of where the devil the American flyers came from. The president obligingly supplied the information that they had come from the fictitious Shangri-La. And we were amused to hear Radio Berlin. It has now been definitely established by Roosevelt himself that Doolittle used the airbase Shangri-La, which was not otherwise described by Roosevelt. On the home front, Industry was rapidly gearing itself for the war effort. But bad news continued to flow from the Pacific. Japs had captured La Shio and now controlled most of Burma as the Chinese army under U.S. General Stilwell fought a desperate delaying action. Then came news of the Coral Sea. General MacArthur's headquarters in Australia, May 9th, by C. Yates McDaniel. The greatest naval battle of the war is in progress in the Coral Sea, directly east of Australia with the immediate fate of this continent depending on the result. Allied headquarters disclosed the battle is in its fifth day and is still raging. The action started last Monday off the Solomon Islands. The next day, General MacArthur announced the action had ceased temporarily, and except for confirmation of Jap losses, there were few details. Too much information might have aided the enemy, but the full story came later. An American correspondent was aboard the aircraft carrier Lexington, a dowager queen of the carrier fleet. Stanley Johnston dispatched a story that still lives as one of the outstanding chronicles of World War II. From the deck of an aircraft carrier which was bombed, machine-gunned, and torpedoed, I witnessed the Battle of the Coral Sea. For five full days, I lived with the American heroes, airmen and seamen alike, who there won a magnificent victory. It was the first great naval defeat ever dealt the Japanese fleet, and ironically enough, it was fought entirely in the air. The battle was scattered over 40,000 square miles of tropic seas, and the service fleet fought the battle. Well, you heard anything new? Nothing since the last report. The Jap planes are 160 miles away and headed on a course that would intercept us. They shouldn't be far away now if they're really after us. Yeah. Well, the old Lexington can take anything those nips have up their sleeves. 
I've been on her for two years now. I don't know a better spot to be if there's going to be trouble. Hey, awfully quiet in there all of a sudden. Yeah. Must be something coming in on the speaker. Let's go in, huh? All right, right this way. Katie to carry a big force coming in from right ahead. 60 miles. This is it, Johnson. And what a whale of a story you're going to get. Huh? All right, men, to your station. Lively. Me for the three. See you later, Lieutenant. I guess they found us this time, Captain Sherman. Yes, they should be here any moment now. Enemy plane, 17,000 feet. Four groups of nine each. Two groups of dive bombers, each protected by Messerschmitt 109. Zeros. I'm at 14,000 feet, about 12 miles east of you, climbing hard. They're going awfully fast. Doubt if I can intercept. That is Lieutenant Commander Paul Ramsey, skipper of the defense alone. Enemy torpedo plane spilling out of cloud eight miles off. There are 6,000 feet in this deep dive. We're intercepting now. We're back in defensive formation now. We'll handle them. Here they come. Enemy torpedo planes coming in Fort Beam. Hard starboard. I remember thinking illogically that there was so much noise I couldn't hear any single explosion. It seemed almost like a silence until the tremendous wham of the first torpedo. Many more came into our sides, but at 11.32, the last of the dive bombers swung by, raking us with gunfire as he passed. The bomb fell close by, missed, and suddenly there was a silence. In all this furious action, our fighters and scouts had not been idle. 103 Japanese planes came over. 43 or more fell in a 20-mile radius. The guns in all took 19, a record. And our pilots, heroes, every one, accounted for 24. The Lexington, in spite of a six-degree list to port, was keeping up with the fleet. I overheard some of the conversation on the bridge. I'm in frame 42, and there's a hole at the water line. A big one. Well, why don't you plug it? Can't. It's too big. I can see a cruiser through it. Then shut the door and forget it. Later, safe on the deck of another vessel, we saw a destroyer approach the Lexington, which was doomed by the fires that had started in her, and send a merciful torpedo into her flaming, still-proud hull. She never wavered. She kept her head up and went down like the lady she always was. The next morning, Captain Fred Sherman soon to be Rear Admiral Sherman, called together the 800 of us who had gathered on a smart new cruiser. Men, I've got news for you. I've asked the Navy Department to hold us all together as one crew and put us aboard a brand new carrier. And, and I've recommended that this new carrier be called the Lexington Second, so that we may carry on together right from here. That battle of the Coral Sea staved off an attempt by the Japs to invade Australia. Bomber pursuit of the fleeing Nipponese survivors accounted for more ships that raised the count of Jap casualties to at least 23. United Nations around the world were heartened. But again, the vicious cycle of joy and despair seemed to come into its own. For our elation over the Coral Sea was hardly in full bloom when distressing news again came out of the West. Corregidor Falls. We remember the many stories of heroism and fortitude which came out of the beleaguered rock that was Corregidor. Supplies could not reach our troops in the last stage of the siege, but even this could not dampen the spirits of those who fought there. 
One story came from an army nurse who escaped just before the final Jap onslaught. She was Second Lieutenant Ruth Marie Straub. The morale on Corregidor was good right up to the last. We all ate mule meat and were glad to get it. One night at dinner, the men were having their meat court. Hey, Joe, how about some bread down here? You're so busy on that mule meat, I thought you wouldn't have time for bread. This is a pleasure. I personally saw this steak cut off the left hind leg that kicked me only last week. It's delicious. Oh, Nelly. Oh, don't do that. That meat stopped right in my throat. <laughs> Haven't you men finished dinner yet? How was the steak? It was wonderful. The old gray Back home, we were learning about sugar rationing. The war had made its first appearance in our kitchen. The Japs had made another sneak attack, this time at Dutch Harbor. And they were also discovered as their full invasion force bore down on Midway, Fullerton, Washington, June 4th. The Navy announced that Midway Island in the Pacific was attacked by Japanese aircraft this morning. Into the minds of many flashed the thought of another sneak attack. Was this to be another Pearl Harbor? No, not this time. The American forces at Midway, under the command of Admiral Nimitz, had taken every precaution. This was an attack on a people who had learned about sneak tactics. This was an attack on a people prepared. On the fourth day, the retreating Japs, relentlessly pursued by planes and submarines, slipped away into an overcast, and the Battle of Midway was won. When the smoke of battle cleared, when the would-be invader had been lost in his own frantic retreat, the score was totaled, and we knew that victory was ours. A victory that was a result of superb teamwork between the Army, Navy, and Marines and their combined air forces. In services held in mess quarters, a naval chaplain spoke. In the flush of victory, let us not be hasty to take all the credit, but humbly give thanks to Almighty God over us, for all good things. Let us give thanks that we are here upon this earth. And let us say a prayer for those who gave their lives in this battle so their country might live. Today, just six months after Pearl Harbor, the Pacific situation has changed thanks to courage, to skill, and to devotion. There is a world of meaning in those words so well known to every seagoing man. Well done, thank you. Carry on. That is what a grateful nation says to you today. Undimmed was the victory at Midway by the news that the Japs had gained a toehold in the Aleutians. Prime Minister Churchill again visited Washington. On July 3rd, the day before they were to become a part of the Army Air Force, the Flying Tigers in China routed eight Japanese bombers, and an official review of seven months disclosed 284 Jap planes destroyed at a cost of only 15 men killed or missing in action. July 4th, U.S. bombers hammered German bases in the Netherlands in their first continental raid. Our bombers had struck at Europe at last, and our fires were glad to be in action. When weather holds up operations for several days, Stomach aches, colds, and sniffles show a decided increase. But once let a bombing mission be announced, and you can't find a cold or a headache in the whole base. 
They're all frightened stiff. They'll be left behind on the ground instead of risking their necks over Europe. Charles Brazelton of Fort Worth, Texas, offered one example. One pilot came in a week or so ago beefing that the high-altitude work was knocking hell out of him. And if he never saw another plane again, it would be too soon. Two days later, a flying mission was announced. Crews will report to their stations immediately. Scramble. Hey, did you hear that? That's my outfit. Let me out of oh, here. No, you don't, soldier. You stay in that bed. No trip for you this time. Uh -huh. you, you just try to stop me. That's my outfit, you hear? You, you let me out of here, Dom. Get down. back in that bed. No. You're going to stay right there. Oh, you yeah. Are. Who's going to keep me here? Harry, somebody bring a rope. Bring a rope. I've got a madman in here. Wherever they were stationed throughout this global war, our men were anxious to get in the fight. And the general pattern of offense began to take form. In August, the Solomons felt the weight of our army, navy, and marines as they stepped through the Jap defenses to land in Guadalcanal. America was on the march. Resentment burned white heat across the nation as we awaited the result of the trial of eight Nazi saboteurs who had stolen ashore from a German submarine. Now, what do you suppose they're going to hand them Nazi saboteurs? Now, you can't ever tell. We gotta be such gentlemen over here. They probably won't get more in a few years. Why do we have to be so nice here? We know what they'd get in Germany if the tables were stirring the axe. That's what. They won't even shoot them. Yeah, I guess so. I'd give this cab and anything else I got just to be the judge in that case. I'd drown them like the rats they are. An elderly, gray-haired woman who said she had one son in the army, another in the navy, had stood outside the jail for over four hours waiting for the execution. I'm glad. I don't see why they waited so long to do it, though. Of course, this is the United States, but they wouldn't have waited over there. August 19th, American Rangers joined with the commandos, their British counterpart, in the devastating raid on Dieppe. America was on the march. September 1st, U.S. and Australian troops drive Japs from New Beachhead at Milne Bay in New Guinea. U.S. Army planes in China bomb Japanese headquarters in Nanking. Largest Allied convoy reaches Momont, beating off Nazi planes and submarines. October 5th, St. Louis Cardinals win World Series. Oh, them bombs. Them gorgeous, wonderful, no-good bombs. October 8th, U.S. Army flyers with British in North Africa carry out raids in their own formations. U.S. troops arrive in Liberia, 750 miles southeast of Dakar, Africa. American troops had landed in Africa. This presaged the action that was to come in North Africa. President Roosevelt signed the record tax bill to yield $6,881,000,000 of dollars. October 25th, Allied forces smashed Rommel's line in Egypt. With the British 8th Army in Egypt, by Don Whitehead. I have seen the graveyard of Rommel's hopes to conquer Northern Africa, and it's a terrible sight to see. Even this scene of death and destruction on the desert is not as awesome, however, as that of Britain's victorious 8th Army giving chase to the retreating enemy who is not many miles ahead. I came to the desert looking for the advanced RAF unit for which I am to report. But as yet, I am unable to catch up with it. It is always just ahead. One phase of the Allied offensive in Africa had started. Rommel was on the run. In this country, wages and salaries were frozen. 
Elections across the country brought back the two-party system, which had been dealt a near knockout blow in the Depression years. Moscow, the overwhelming hordes of cracked German divisions in their desperate attempts to take Stalingrad, slowly and at a fearful price, fought to stem the tide of a mighty new Russian offensive. We are attacking with everything at our disposal. We are exacting a horrible toll from the invaders. But we must have help. There must be a second front. It must come soon. 10,000 Germans killed today. But we must have help. We must have a second front. Powerful American invasion forces land in French North Africa. Americans capture Casablanca and Oran, ending French resistance. You did well to discontinue resistance. We didn't want to fight the French. We're your friends. We resisted with everything we had because we had no orders. But now that you have taken us, we must admit that with us, it is, as you say, okay. On November 13th, President Roosevelt signed the bill drafting 18 and 19-year-olds. Hey, did you hear that? They're calling us 18 and 19-year-old men. And only this morning, Pop was calling me a kid. Boy, I'm going to enlist. Bulletin. U.S. Navy destroys 23 Japanese warships and transports in three-day battle near Solomons. Backed by Army bombers, surface and air units of the Navy sunk 11 Japanese warships and 12 transports and damaged 17 other vessels in a three-day running battle. Much of it a feature close-range gun duel in the darkness. Comparative losses were indeed a small price to pay for the ships and the probable 24,000 Japanese troops who lost their lives in this attempt to drive our forces from Guadalcanal. This we have done. And so ends round three in democracy's march to the eventual victory of the United Nations. This we have done. This we have done was prepared from dispatches from all fronts and dramatized by Paul Girard of Press Association, radio subsidiary of Associated Press. All characters on This We Have Done were impersonated. <laughs> <laughs>